0: This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hello and welcome to the Get Healthy 360 podcast. Today we have with us returning guest, Dr. Linda Bluestein, MD. She's a former ballet dancer, founded the Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialist to better serve people with pain, especially dancers and those with hypermobility. As a leading specialist in treating pain with connective tissue disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and related disorders, she created the first online EDS continuing medical education program with the international nonprofit organization EDS Awareness and continues to serve as programs as the program's physician director as well as the organization's volunteer medical consultant. Dr. Bluestein founded and co-hosts the podcast Hypermobility Happy Hour. She is a contributing author for the book Disjointed, a book about hypermobility EDS slash hyper. H-D- HSD coming out early 2020. Dr. Blustein completed her anesthesiology residency at the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine after receiving her medical degree from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine. She has over 20 years of experience caring for complex patients. Dr. Blustein has a special interest in treating dancers, gymnasts, acrobatic artists, and other athletes at risk for hypomobility disorders. Her love of dance and genuine understanding of artists and athletes is paramount in accurately diagnosing and effectively treating dancers. She's a member of the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, the Performing Arts Medicine Association, and the Resources Committee for the Dance Healthy Alliance of Canada. So, Dr. Bluestein is a highly sought after international invited speaker. She's a forefront of the research on pain, hypermobility, and dance. She has written and lectured extensively on the topic of pain neuroscience. Chronic pain, hypermobility disorders. Dr. Bluestein repeatedly receives top reviews from medical students for her teaching abilities and is a member of the clinical faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Central Wisconsin, where she also serves as the course director for the Rishi Healers Art Program. So, Dr. Bluestein, Thank you very much for joining us. So today we're talking about something that I know very little about, and I'm willing to bet very few people know anything about. So it's the Pentad as it relates to mast cell activation syndrome.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: Good. So thank you very much. So can you just give us some background as to what this disorder is?
1: Yes. So it is actually, so Pentad means five, and this is something that is really emerging in medicine as these various disorders that, that we are finding occurring much more commonly in individuals. And in some people, one of these five things might be much more um, predominant. And in other people, it might be that they have three of the five things or two of the five things. But we just know that these five things, a good way to think of it is they just kind of travel together, like like a caravan kind of a thing. that you know you might not have all of them, but if you have one, your chances of having another one, is higher than somebody else who doesn't have you know one of those five things so the five things that tr- that travel together are number 1 connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos syndromes Ehlers-Danlos syndromes Marfans osteogenesis imperfecta these are various different um, disorders of connective tissue often think thought of as hypermobility disorders because people who have these conditions tend to have joints that Go beyond the average range of motion. The second thing of the pentad is dysautonomia, which is dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And basically, your autonomic nervous system controls all of your autom- automatic functions. So that's your breathing, your heart rate, your digestion, your sweating, you know, things like that. So uh, pupil dilation, uh, all these things that happen automatically are controlled by our. Automat or autonomic nervous system. And so dysfunction of that is the second thing. The third thing is mast cell activation syndrome, which is where you have mast cells that are more likely triggered than in the average person or quote unquote normal people. And so that is different from mastocytosis where you have an increased number of mast cells. Mast cell activation syndrome is where the mast cell number is not increased, but they react more easily. And when they react and release their, the chemicals that they are, the, uh, the various different mediators that they have inside them, which are, there's hundreds of them, they have effects all throughout the body. So these people have a wide variety of symptoms. And then the fourth thing is gastrointestinal complaints. The most common one being um, what we call gastroparesis, which is where the stomach empties slowly. So these people get full easily. They might have constipation, vomiting. So they could have other, various other digestive problems, but that's the most common one. And then the fifth thing is autoimmune disorders. We know that people who have these other things are more likely to have autoimmune problems than people who do not have any of those other things. So I mentioned them in that order, but a person could have, you know, the fourth thing as their, what's their primary problem. And they might not have any evidence of any of the other four, or they might have the third one and a little bit of evidence of number two. Uh, It just, it varies a lot in different individuals. And we really are, Figuring a lot of this out right now, but it's an exciting space to be in because there's a lot of people that are suffering with these problems and have had a really hard time getting appropriate medical care. And I really feel very optimistic that we are going to be getting to the root of a lot of this in the next few years.
0: So these patients are often a challenge for the healthcare community. And I will tell you, there are a lot of physicians that have, don't, aren't aware that these syndromes exist because they're not very specific. So Correct. <laughs> I, what I'm imagining is someone, so I'm, I'm picturing someone who say was a dancer when they were younger, very active, and then they show up to their doctor say in their twenties or thirties. And then suddenly they have these weird heart complaints, these non-specific joint pains. They have these stomach complaints. They tend to be allergic to all sorts of things. And then, but that doesn't fit into a quick, easy clinical diagnosis. So, in my experience, and, and correct me if I'm misspeaking, but these, these patients typically get shooed off because there isn't really anything specific that most physicians can pin this, the diagnosis on so they don't know what to do. And the physicians want to help, but they just don't know what to do. So they end up just saying, well, this patient's a little bit nutty or it's probably a psychological issue. And then they're just kind of shuns it off. And then the patients end up going from physician to physician to physician. No, no one's ever helping them. And then they just get very frustrated with healthcare in general, but they know that something's wrong.
1: You summed that up extremely well. And that is definitely uh, a big part of the problem is, you know, you and I, as as physicians, we're trained to look for patterns. And some patterns are a lot easier for us to recognize than others. And these are patterns that I certainly did not learn about in medical school. And it's these are emerging concepts. There is a lot of science behind all of this. There's, there's tons and tons of um, papers that have been written. And so this is not these, none of these things are things that are really new, but we're reali- what we're realizing is that they're much more common than previously thought. And especially if you consider exactly what you just said, that, that people go in, that they, they They present these things that to a lot of physicians that have limited time, limited resources, they need to get to the next patient, they hear all these things that they, most of them are symptoms and not signs. So they can't see any evidence of what's going on. It's not like measuring a blood pressure where you can see a number and you can see is it elevated or is it low, et cetera. Most of the problems that these people are experiencing things that the physician themselves cannot see. So an imaging will be normal, lab tests will be normal a lot of the time, et cetera. So that's exactly right. They end up getting dismissed. And oftentimes, you know, then they start doubting themselves wondering, well, maybe I really am crazy, which makes things only worse. We know that stress is a huge activator of mast cell degranulation. Stress is a huge, huge problem for that. And we know that stress makes pain worse. So once a person starts to get Um, disregarded, labeled as crazy, et cetera. It just makes their symptoms worse. And then they do, they end up going to, um, they end up kind of going to different uh, positions, different clinics, and they get labeled as, you know, hopping around when they, if the problems had been figured out earlier on, it would would have been a lot better. And so now you have oftentimes, you know, I have different ages of people in my practice, but when I have people that are in their forties or fifties, some of them have been suffering with different complaints for like 30 years. So you know, and I know when we have somebody come in that has something going on for 30 years, it's pretty hard to feel confident that you're going to solve this, especially when you're supposed to be spending, you know, 20 minutes for an initial visit, 10 minutes for a follow-up or, you know, something like that. I mean, I know some people have more, some people have less, but I think that the other problem is our, our broken healthcare. Our healthcare system is really run by insurance companies. They control the money and they don't want to pay For the workup of these patients, even though I believe that in the long run, it will save them money. Because if they can keep these patients out of the emergency room, if they can get appropriately diagnosed and appropriately educated as to what they can do to help themselves and appropriately treated, then it will overall save the insurance company money. But the insurance company doesn't think that way. Healthcare insurance companies, sorry. um,
0: Just to jump in, it's interesting that some people will say they feel that way, but there are economic studies that clearly show from other countries, uh, it's in his, Thomas Sarwell is, is an economist, and he demonstrated very clearly in medical economics that if you limit the time that physicians spend with patients, it increases the number of visits, delays diagnosis, and increases complications and cost versus increasing the time for office visits and having those physicians paid appropriately, then things can actually be addressed and the total cost actually goes down from just a purely economic standpoint. And the patients that, that, I've, seen, and the patients that I've seen with this, this, this disorder and clearly, you know a lot more about this than I do, but they're incredibly frustrated and very angry, rightfully so that no one is really taking the time to listen to them and figure out what is going on.
1: Right. A- absolutely. And I was not aware of that paper. So I would love to, I would love to, if you could send that to me, that would be great. That's, I'll, I'll that you. is very interesting. Yeah. That there's data to support that. That's fabulous. Yes, that's exactly right. They get frustrated. They, they, they get angry. They don't, and, and as it goes on for longer and longer, they don't know what they can do to, they, they, it, things start to just get so, so, so much more raveled it's harder to unravel that once it becomes longer and longer standing. And so I what I'm trying to do with the dance medicine work that I'm doing because these dancers we know are at increased risk of connective tissue disorders. Um, We know that they have more joint hypermobility, but there is evidence also showing that they have more joint hypermobility disorders. And we also know there was actually a recent study that did genetic analysis on um, the Houston Ballet. They looked at the, uh, so these are professional dancers in the Houston Ballet, and they found that 88% of them had a variant in a connective tissue gene. And this was a Per for for individual genes, some of them were were never reported variants, and others were. I believe it was like three percent in the dancers, but never reported to 0.3 percent in the general population. So this was a a massively increased abnormality amongst those dancers. So we know something is going on there that they can succeed in dance because they are hypermobile. You need extreme range of motion in dance, and I'm trying to catch dancers while they're younger or other you know, athletes, um, other just young people in general too, that are potentially at risk for some of these disorders so that we can give them the appropriate information, give them the appropriate advice so that when, if and when they develop other symptoms, they can get care more quickly and overall cost the healthcare system less money. So I'm doing a lot of workshops. Um, I'm available to do workshops all over the world I've been doing workshops for um, dance educators because you know what happens is the dancers go to their dance teachers for medical advice. Uh, they see their dance teacher as their number one resource. So they will go to their dance teacher and ask for advice. So <clears throat> my feeling is that we should be delivering the information at the appropriate level. So if you or I could Educate one patient one on one, and obviously a lot of what we do has to be done one on one. A lot of it, is, it has to be, but a lot of what we do can be delivered in a larger setting. So if I can talk to, you know, 100 people or 500 people, or if I can do a lecture and talk to, you know, a room full of physicians and physical therapists, et cetera, and that way I can impact more people's lives. That's more efficient. So I think that's the other thing from a from a healthcare system standpoint to think about that everything doesn't have to happen in that, in that visit,
0: but the things that are specific to that patient,
1: you know, um, certainly do.
0: So regarding, just to touch off with what you said, so you, I'm going to describe a picture of say there's, because it's a dance class, it's typically little girls. So you have a little girl that's very flexible, super, super flexible. She could do all the ballet moves and keep in mind, I know nothing about ballet, but she can (laughs) do all the ballet moves that they're supposed to do. And everyone's giving her praise for, for being hyperflexible and she can do the splits beyond 180 degrees and all this these ballet things. But from what you're saying, that sets her up for chronic pain later in life because that causes chronic trauma on our all our little joints. So what's something that she should understand and what's something that say physical therapist should understand to help prevent these long-term chronic complications of her doing dance?
1: Right. So I love to excuse me, talk to parents of Dancers, because it's the parents that are making a lot of the decisions, right? Well, the parents are pretty by all the decisions depending on the age of the child. So I would say the most important thing is for the parents to know what dance school to take that child to. Because I have patients in my practice, um, dancers or, previ- or previous dancers who had amazing potential, but their dance teachers literally ruined their bodies because they would do things like, and you know, here here people have to kind of use their imagination a little bit, but it, Probably a lot of us have seen these photos where, you know, you put one leg in front of you, the other leg behind you, both of them resting on the seat of a chair and then the teacher pushing their body between the chairs so that, like you said, they're going beyond the, the 180 degrees of split, which most people can't even do that. So, so somebody forcing your joints into it, an even greater range of overstretching is just horrible and does tremendous damage. So I think number one, parents can be much more educated about where to take their child for dance. We're now in a field where competitive dance is very, very popular. And it's so important for parents to know what to look for in a dance studio, to what to look for with ethical, moral dance teachers, dance teachers who want the education that will help them better, you know, care for their dancers, and for their longevity of their not just their dance career, but their longevity of movement. I mean, we all want to be as physically able as long as we possibly can be. But I see people, I imagine you do too, young people who are basically, you know, almost, almost crippled. I mean, they're in wheelchairs and, and I feel like, you know, sometimes it's, it's their genetics. There's probably nothing that could have been done differently. And it's, it's tragic, but they just, it was kind of a setup that way. But other, I feel like there's a lot of those that could be avoided. I've had patients come to me in a wheelchair, unable to move their lower extremities and been labeled as conversion disorder, getting back to what we were talking about earlier and um, misdiagnoses, things like that. Um, I had one patient who was 16 in a wheelchair and she's now walking. Now, is she, you know, jumping around and doing, you know, flips and things like that? I'm sure not but at least she's not in a wheelchair anymore and she's walking. So we really need to um, educate parents so that they know what to look for, so that they know what to, what to do. An important thing to think about is that children are much more flexible than than adults and that it's harder to determine if a child is more bendy than they really should be, but you're right, you can always compare against their peers. So if you're watching them in a dance class, and they're doing all kinds of things that other kids are not doing, that does give you some idea, "Hmm, maybe this is something I need to be keeping an eye out for.
0: And what would your convers- How would your conversation go with physical therapists? Because that would I would imagine be the next step so, for someone Correct. with hypermobility disorder.
1: Right. So physical therapy is extremely valuable in patients that have hypermobility disorders and can be really really beneficial. It's very important that the physical therapist understand what connective tissue disorders are, or what hypermobility disorders are. So I want to just quickly say that when I use the word hypermobility disorders that's like the bigger umbrella and underneath there is a group of patients that have connective tissue disorders. So we know that they actually truly do have defects in their connective tissue, which think of like the building blocks of the body. And that's why they're hypermobile. We can be hypermobile, meaning again, hypermobile just means greater than average range of motion. We can be hypermobile for a lot of reasons, And some of those people do not have an underlying connective tissue disorder. So that's an important um, distinction, but I usually, when I'm talking about very general things, I try to use the hypermobility disorder because oftentimes we don't know if this person has a connective tissue disorder or not. Unfortunately, the most common connective tissue disorder does not yet have a genetic uh, variance that has been identified. So we don't know what causes hypermobile EDS or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which you may see abbreviated as lowercase h, capital E, capital D, capital S. That is the most common um, connective tissue disorder. And we don't know what genetic cause there is for it yet. So there is no genetic test that can be done. I see all the time people being sent to genetics with this disorder. And if we think that we need to rule out marfans or vascular EDS or something like that, that is appropriate. But a lot of these patients really don't need to be seen in a genetics clinic. It's more a matter of managing the symptoms.
0: So we've, we've touched okay. about I'm sorry, go
1: ahead. Well, I didn't answer your question about physical therapy. Let me just, um, let me just back up and talk about that. So I've been in and out of, as, as someone who has EDS. I've been in and out of physical therapy myself for, well, I I guess I could probably say my entire life because I think I started as a teenager. And that's when I started having joint pain. I was a ballet dancer and that was my plan. A was to be a a professional ballet dancer, but my, my body had other ideas. So physical therapy, a really, really appropriate physical therapist, a really good physical therapist is one that number one will modify the exercises appropriately for that patient and isn't using as much of a cookie cutter approach. Just like just like the physician who is a better fit for these patients is one that can really think outside the box, really has an open mind, is willing to take the time and that kind of thing. Same thing for physical therapists, one who really will take the time to, to truly understand what's going on and understands that, that in most cases, these are systemic disorders, meaning That the entire body is affected. So when I have been in physical therapy and I said they show me an exercise and I say okay, well, but my wrist, I have problems with my wrist. So how am I going to do that? So then they have to modify it. But a physical therapist who maybe doesn't have a deeper understanding might label me as crazy, like or lazy. Might say I'm crazy or lazy. You know, she either is not willing to do this or she thinks that every part of her body is broken. Well, it turns out I have a lot of different parts of my body that have problems. So I have to work, I have to create workarounds, you know, and my physical therapist has to create workarounds and it's the exact same thing for my patients. So when they go to a physical therapist who maybe they don't really know what these disorders are, but they want to learn about them. That's fantastic. I say that's, that's good. So long as they're willing to, to um, modify the exercises to best meet your needs and teach you the home program that you need to do in order to get better. And then the third thing I would say is that a really good physical therapist also inquires about what you're doing outside of the physical therapy sessions that may be aggravating your problem. And I'll give a really quick example. I had a patient who was um, i had seen for neck pain, was working them up. Um, sent them to physical therapy, and they weren 't getting better and I got a note from the physical therapist they weren 't getting better and they came in to see me, and they had a huge, heavy bag over one shoulder and I looked at them and I said, No, 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 that is not going to help your neck i said let 's talk about what you could do instead to carry you know to carry what you need or you know we worked on some modifications for that, and that 's when her neck got better so I think we need to consider that a lot of us are doing things outside of our exercise program and outside of maybe even our work environment, we could be doing things there too that are exacerbating our symptoms. So to summarize,
0: with the joint issues, you really need to identify ideally early on in life and then be probably seen and treated by an appropriate physical therapist who has a background in these connective tissue disorders that can take your unique uh, hyperflexibility and, and possibly pain in your joints into account.
1: Right. And I, I like to look at it as, as a triangle with the three points of the triangle being the, um, the medical aspect. So you need, a, you need a physician in your corner that, and it could be your primary care doctor, it could be a pain medicine specialist. It could be a rheumatologist. I mean, there's a lot of different types of um, physicians that somebody might be seeing. Um, the the uh, different people that I interface with we're, we're from all different specialties, and and it's good because it takes a team approach for a lot of these um, cases. So you need it. So you need the medical part, physical, the physical therapy or home program exercise part, which in some cases, in some of my patients, they've done Pilates or they've done um, Other other things like the Alexander technique or Feldenkrais or things like that that can be very beneficial um, would be would be the second point, I would say the exercise piece, the movement piece for your body. And then the third point I would say is the mental health aspect. So we know that there is a huge overlap between anxiety and joint laxity. These things occur much more commonly in the same individuals. And so it is extremely important to Appropriately identify um, other things too, like we have a much more common incidence of hyperactivity, um, ADHD. So we want to make sure that we identify those things also and appropriately treat them as well. So it, in my mind, it's all three of those aspects that are important: the medical, the physical, and the um, psychosocial. Whether it's you know counseling, psychiatry, whether it is you know somebody being Um, You know, more supported in their home environment. Those are the kind of things that we really need to deal with.
0: So, that was you. So, we've touched on or gone into some depth about the joint issues, but there are four other things to the Pentad. So, can you describe some what is dysautonomia and how is someone going to identify that they have it? And then, what do they do about it? Right,
1: right. So, dysautonomia is the overarching umbrella for problems with your automatic nervous system or your autonomic nervous system. And again, these are things that it controls your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate, your digestion, um, what, whether you're sweating. Um, so control of like temperature regulation, um, dilation of your pupils, um, all these different things. And we could think of it as your the, on the one side, you have the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight, flight, or freeze. Most of us have had like a close call with a car accident or something like that. And that engages your sympathetic nervous system. And so think about these disorders as that type of feeling. You can feel your heart racing and you can, like, you know, your digestion does shut down in those situations because right then and there, the priority is to be able to get you out of danger. You know, we were evolved this way, right? So we could get out of danger. So we are... Um, we have two different systems that are supposed to balance each other and engage when when they are needed. So on one side, we have the sympathetic nervous system. And on the other side, we have the parasympathetic nervous system. And when that is engaged, we are able to digest our food and we are able to be much more relaxed. And um, people who have these types of disorders often have problems, for example, with sleep, because during the night, they're having these little micro arousals because their sympathetic nervous system is unstable, and they are they're kind of their heart rate will start going up dramatically over the night. So they they don't sleep well. They might have difficulty when they go from sitting to standing or maintaining a standing posture. They get lightheaded and and um, dizzy, and they start to feel faint. They get pooling of blood in their legs, so their legs will start to turn red or purple. Um, They will have problems with temperature control. So they are not able to be, they have cold intolerance and hot intolerance. So they have like a very narrow range of temperature um, because like other people, they don't sweat and, and not able to control their own internal temperature. So they have to be very specific about like layering of clothing and those kinds of things. Um, digestion problems are extremely common. So, you know, slow digestion is, is a, a, a common thing. And, the, and I met, mentioned about the GI part also as a separate disorder. Part of the challenge with these five things, although we think that they are five somewhat distinct things, we know there's a huge amount of overlap. There's a huge amount of overlap between the symptoms of a dysautonomia type disorder and mast cell activation syndrome, for example. And so it can be very hard to to determine where the underlying problem lies and what is at the root cause. So um, this is why when I work up patients, I do spend a lot of time trying to figure out, well, what are the most predominant symptoms in in them? Because it does vary by different individuals. Um, Under that dysautonomia umbrella in this group of people, the most common condition is and now we think that this is actually a group of conditions, is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And that's the acronym for that is POTS, P-O-T-S. So we know that there are um, actually a lot of people who, as they go through puberty, that they will have um, a little bit of instability of their autonomic nervous system as their body is growing. And so they might faint or they might have lightheadedness. They might get dizzy when they get out of bed. Most of those people will actually get better as they get older, and they just go through kind of a short phase. If you have POTS, you have to have these kind of symptoms for more than six months, and that means that when you go from, uh, you know, laying down or sitting to standing, so it's postural orthostatic, orthostatic meaning when you make that transition, that your heart rate goes up by more than 40 beats per minute. In a, in a younger person, more than 30 beats per minute in an older person. That's the technical definition um, for, for POTS. So oftentimes the tilt table test will be done in order to determine if they meet that criteria or not. Um, so, and what can be done about it? So um, a lot of the kind of, I don't want to say older recommendations because I believe this is still current in a lot of places is to increase fluids and, and salt, sodium, but, it's important to increase other electrolytes as well. And some people actually react adversely to increasing sodium. And it, it may be because it's really hard for a person to know how much sodium they're taking in. Um, you know, Very few people have the ability to actually look at every single label of everything that they're, that they're eating and, and measure every ounce of water that they take in and get the exact right ratio of sodium to, to water in a given day. And if we take in too much sodium, then, then we're going to uh, you know, lose, lose more fluid than we uh, than we, we really want in these circumstances because we think some of these patients are low on volume, blood volume. And um, so when they stand up, they really are not able to compensate because their blood volume is going into their legs. And I do want to mention another super common symptom for this is uh, brain fog. So patients feel like they just cannot make Clear connections between things. They're trying to go to school and they're not able to function at their previous level. And they know that they're just not they're just not themselves. And that's obviously a, a difficult thing as a physician to to work out when somebody says my brain just feels foggy because that you know there can be a variety of causes for that. It can be very hard to. To, uh, work that up.
0: So then what about um, the, the next disorder, which some physicians don't even think this is a real syndrome, but mast cell activation syndrome?
1: Right. It, this is really, really challenging. Um, I, I actually had a patient in my office the other day have uh, a clear cut allergic reaction. In fact, it was very interesting because her service dog started acting funny before she actually started knowing that she was having a problem and she had visible signs of this problem as well. So it it is really, really challenging because although like a case like her, she has very, it was very clear cut. Not everyone is like that. A lot of what they have, like I said before, are symptoms, not
0: signs. So just to jump in, you've mentioned signs and symptoms before. So can you clarify what is the difference between signs and symptoms and why is that important?
1: Well, I try to tell patients as much as possible how to prioritize when they're going to, even if they're coming to see me and I have more time to spend with them, I try to educate them as to how to best get the most out of your doctor's visit. And sometimes, I'm sure you've had this happen, sometimes they'll be talking about, you know, like I said, the brain fog thing. And they'll go into a lot of detail that doesn't really help me solve their problem. Whereas they might mention in passing at the end of the, like they literally be living, leaving the building and they'll mention something and they'll say, oh, and I have a photo of it. And I'll say, well, show me the photo. And the pho- it's like, why didn't you mention that earlier? If they have something that is symptom where they feel it, but nobody else can see it, that helps us less than if they have something that is a sign. So a sign is where it's it's something that that we can actually see. So it might be swelling of a limb or deformity of a limb um, in the joint in the case of a joint problem. It might be in the case of a mast cell problem. It might be discoloration of the skin from flushing or like a histamine release or hides, something like that. So if people take photos. I've had patients show me videos of, because it's not uncommon to have like muscle twitching type problems with these conditions. And so if they've taken videos of these things, that can be very helpful because, you know, again, if someone's describing something to me and I, I mean, I can relate to it, but it's harder to quantify, right? We we like to quantify things. We like lab values. We like numbers for blood pressure. We like numbers for heart rate. So if they have a watch that's been storing their heart rate data or if they have, like I said, pictures of things, changes that have happened on their skin, or I see things, you know, in my clinic, you you too, That that's very helpful. So you know, I try to get people to to learn how to tell their story in a way
0: that we can help them better. So just to summarize, so what you're saying is that people who, who have the the condition of mast cell activation syndrome, they have just an overactive allergic response, but when they go in to see their physician to describe it, and they're describing all of these feelings in extensive detail, it's hard to really diagnose that because there aren't any clear signs, which are objective things like blood pressure variation, et cetera. So basically, right, really right. focus on objective measures or uh, objective things that people can see and test. So, mast cell activation syndrome, it's almost a n- non specific hyperallergic response, itching redness, rashes on the skin, et cetera.
1: Right. And then there's actually three three components. So so yeah, mast cells are present in connective tissue and contain hundreds of uh, mediators inside of them. And when they release those mediators, those mediators have effects all throughout the body. So if you think about it, it does make sense if they're being activated more easily, that, that the symptoms could be highly variable between individuals. It's not like it always looks like that. That's part of the problem. Is it doesn't always look like this in everybody. It it looks like different things in different individuals. And there's actually the allergic part is definitely a huge part of that. There's also an inflammatory part that you know some of these mediators cause an inflammatory reaction. And there's also a proliferative part, so they can also um, cause uh, abnormal cell um, growth. So,
0: so when you say there's an inflammatory reaction, what does that actually mean?
1: So, th- when when the, these mast cells release their their mediators, like they can release things like cytokines, which can cause more inflammation in the tissues, and we believe that this is why people can a lot of people with mast cell activation syndrome, you know, have a lot of problems with pain, and some of them have improvements in their pain when you treat. When you when you target treating their mast cell activation syndrome specifically, you're, I mean, you're not even necessarily treating specifically their pain problem, but, but you're targeting treatment at the mast cells and sometimes their pain gets better, which does make us think that, that those are related. Plus, we know that these cytokines are inside the mast cells.
0: So let me summarize what you just said and correct me if I'm misspeaking. So you have these little cells called mast cells that live in the connective tissue and these people with these connective tissue disorders already have connective tissue problems. So these little cells called mast cells live in the connective tissue and they release chemicals that can cause pain and swelling and achiness. And if you can give them medication to calm down their mast cells so they're not releasing all these chemicals causing pain and swelling, et cetera, then that can help their overall quality of life.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I would just say one thing that, that some people that have this will also have a connective tissue disorder. It's not you know it's not always. So some people will have EDS but not mast cell. Some people will have mast cell activation syndrome but not EDS or any of the EDS related disorder. you know, EDS, other related disorders, which that could be a whole multi-hour conversation as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to clarify, too, that I, I realize that both of us are talking about mast cells. It's not an uncommon mistake that people will think M A S S and it's M A S T, mast cells. <laughs> so I just want to make sure that people, if, if anyone's trying to, you know, follow this, this new that this is really new information. It's M A S P, mast. I just want to make sure that people
0: understand that. Thank you for clarifying. And then the sure. other issue is these gastrointestinal, stomach, intestine complaints. So so far, so where we have, where let me just. Summarize for where we're at. So, you have these younger people who may or may not have this hyper flexibility issue. Typically, they're dancers, ballet dancers, cheerleaders, etc. They may develop blood pressure issues as time goes on. They may develop the chronic pain in their joints because of the mast cells, these little cells that live in the joints, and they release these chemicals that can cause pain and inflammation. And as a physician, someone's coming in saying, Well, all my joints kind of hurt, but there aren't really any specific lab tests I can do. My blood pressure is all over the place, but there's nothing really, there's no definitive test to f- diagnose that. And then they have these non-specific joints, aches, and pains. And then on top of that, they also have, can you talk about the gastrointestinal side effects or symptoms? Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: I do want to um, just mention one, one thing before I move on to that, which is because as we talked about EDS, I realized that um, EDS and related disorders, the, the joint problem, the pain in the joints definitely can come from activation of the mast cells, but it can also come from the microtrauma. You mentioned this earlier, Dr. Ferguson mentioned this earlier about the, the dancer who might be doing this past the 180 degree splits. And if you think about the tendons and ligaments in our body, they're not meant to do that. So we we get this accumulated microtrauma in our bodies. So sometimes the joints are actually dislocating and other times they're doing what's called subluxing. But um, we know that the tendons and ligaments are getting more trauma than in somebody who is not built this way. And um, that's also because the connective tissue itself is weaker and because the joint range of motion is greater. And they're also, in some cases, doing these things repeatedly. So that's the other thing that I tell people is be careful with repetitive motion. I tell dance teachers, like, you know, I've had people say, well, I did the same. I was doing this variation and which is basically think of like a other people might call it a dance routine, um, and the, and if they do the same one again and again and again, like they might be in a touring group or something, and so and say they are doing something where it involves one arm up over their head and some you know kind of weird contorted type thing, that shoulder is getting a lot of trauma again and again and again and again, and it might not be that painful at the time, but later on it might. Start to right, start to be painful because as we get older, we cannot repair the cells as quickly as we could when we were younger. So I just realized that I didn't mention anything about dislocations or subluxations or microtrauma, and those are three really kind of important concepts for EDS. So I hope that was okay to add that. That's <laughs> um,
0: just to clarify. What is a subluxation?
1: So a subluxation, so a dislocation, is when the, the bones completely come out of contact with each other. So at a joint. So, if you think about, for example, your shoulder, that's that's a good example because that's the the uh, the, the upper arm. You know, has the head of what's called the humerus that goes into what most people think of as your shoulder. Most of the time, when people have a joint out of place, it's what's called subluxed, not dislocated. When it's dislocated, the joint, the bones are completely out of contact with each other. When it's subluxed, they're not in proper alignment, but they're also not out of contact. They are still in some contact with each other. So that's the difference between the two. You really cannot tell in most cases without an x-ray. Um, and if, if a joint is dislocated, oftentimes people will think, oh, well, if it's dislocated, it has to be forcefully put back in place. And that's true. And I, it, when it happens in the beginning, most likely, and in most cases, but if somebody has dislocated, for example, their shoulder again and again and again and again and again. It, it kind of can, can go in and out of place much more easily. So it's hard to say that, that, that that's an absolute 100% rule if, if the tissue, if the, all of the tissues surrounding that shoulder are that loose.
0: Thank you for that clarification. So let's move <laughs> on to the GI or gas, the stomach complaints.
1: Right. So it used to be, we used to think of this as a triad, the three things we mentioned earlier. So the, the information about the GI, Again, I'm not a gastroenterologist, so this is, you know, getting a little bit more out of my wheelhouse, so um, I won't have as much to say about it. But I do know that it is extremely common for people to have slow GI motility, meaning food moving through their gastrointestinal tract. And in some cases, I have young patients that actually end up with feeding tubes um, because they are not able to, like, process actual food or they develop so many food intolerances that can be related to the mast cell thing. Um, but but gastrointestinal uh, digestion problems, absorption problems, um, food moving the speed at which food moves through the GI tract um, these are these are quite uh, common in this
0: population.
1: Not everyone has them by any means, um, but but they occur more commonly.
0: And lastly, you talked about autoimmune symptoms or problems. Right. Right. So, so things like
1: Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is where we develop antibodies against our own thyroid, um, that is much more common in people that have conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So we know that, um, so, so autoimmune is basically, think of when the body is you know, um, attacking itself. So we, we do develop you know, antibodies to things in the environment. And for example, when we get vaccines, the whole idea with a vaccine is that we're gonna build antibodies to whatever we got the vaccine for, and then that will help protect us if we get exposed to whatever that vaccine was, um, say, let's say the flu vaccine. So then, if we get exposed to the flu, we already have antibodies that will help protect us. Interestingly, this population of people also has abnormal reactions to vaccines, or um, much more often will have problems with vaccines, but we also often have abnormal immune systems and will attack uh, will develop antibodies that will attack things that are not not normal like the thyroid gland
0: so so, that's- so would you have any advice for people who have this pentad and what would they do regarding vaccines because that's another large topic in the world of health.
1: <laughs> right it is a, it is it is another large topic i guess the the first suggestion that i have is if you can be as organized as possible when you go in to your doctor's visits because you really want them to be your ally and as much as possible to try to understand the challenges that they face, your, your physician, your physician is facing pressure from their um, oftentimes from their employer to see a certain number of patients in a day Um, you know, uh, lack of reimbursement from insurance companies and um, you know, difficulties in knowing what tests to order and you know things like that and and looking and seeing that you've had all these tests done before and they were all normal. So, you know, if they're not familiar with these conditions, it can be very challenging and you want to go in with the right attitude. You know, you want to go in and say I, you know, ha- have your have notes organized, have a copy for them so they don't have to make a copy that's best. And I think it's perfectly fine to say I've heard of these conditions I'm wondering if this might apply to me. I know it's something that a lot of people are not aware of. Like make it easy for them to help you. Make it easy for them to not feel defensive because if you go in there and say, and demand certain tests, I want this, I want this, I want this, they're going to immediately feel attacked and be defensive and it's probably not going to go well. But if they feel like you really are, trying to, um, you know, recognizing the fact that they cannot possibly know everything. I think that's what I'm trying to get at here is that, you know, it's so important for patients. I, I, I sometimes hear patients say, why didn't the doctor say, I don't know, but then turn around and accuse us for not knowing everything. <laughs> so I think it's really important for, for, for people to understand that we can't possibly know everything. There's so much in medicine now, even within a fairly narrow field, you know, I have a pretty small niche now, but it's still impossible to know everything. So we need to be a little bit more forgiving of that, I think, um, and understand the challenges that, that your physician faces. Bring someone with you to help take notes, to help ask questions, to ask to act as your advocate. And when it comes to coming in with notes, I suggest that people have a one or two page medical summary that you keep updated that has um, your your medication allergies separated from your medication intolerances, um your uh, your your diagnoses as accurate as possible because you know, like you know, when Dr. Ferguson or I am, am seeing somebody, it helps us so much more if we know the specifics of things rather than the more, the more general, like it, you know, can be very, very helpful. So I suggest that people have like a one or two page sheet that has, for example, if you've had multiple MRIs and, you know, did the last one show anything or not, you could have like a section, like we write a note, you know, a section for imaging, a section for labs. If there's any, if there's something that in the past was, you know, markedly abnormal, or, you know, when your last labs were done. And I know this is probably it sounds like I'm asking a lot of people. I'm just saying that if people can do this, because I've had patients do this, and it just dramatically cuts down on the time that I have to chase down this information. So that's where I think it, people can help themselves if they can do this.
0: So, but on the flip side, there there will be people coming in to see you and saying, I'm coming to see you. You're getting paid to see me. Why do I have to do all this work? Right. If, like, that's your job.
1: Right. Right. No, I, I I definitely realize that. Um, in most cases, I feel like people will understand because they've been to multiple different doctors, and and it's also you're dealing with with a group of people that have a lot of limitations. They might have difficulty typing on a computer for a whole host of reasons, or maybe they don't even have one. They might have difficulty writing because of problems with their hands. They have brain fog. Uh, what I'm asking is is very challenging for a lot of people. When I've had people that have been able to do this, it's really helped me a lot. I have a lot of patients that are, you know, pretty highly educated, and um, some that that are they've, they've even like, you know, done PhDs and research and things like that. So I've 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 had some people that their capacity is pretty um, they're pretty sophisticated in that in that regard. But I know that it's not an, it's, maybe it's not an appropriate expectation, but I do know that um, Dr. Hakeem, who's one of the big um, researchers, he's, he's now the, I believe, the director of education for the EDS Society. And when he and I spoke at the EDS conference in Baltimore, I believe that was just over a year ago, he was telling me that he asks his patients to create a one or two page summary of their medical problems and that to have that to take to their visits with any of their doctors um, in order to make it more you know efficient. So I, I think that... Maybe some parts are not realistic, like like the labs or something like that, or the imaging, but at least if they can put down, like what their diagnoses are, because I sometimes see people, I'm not affiliated with any system other than the fact that I am on the faculty. Um, Like you said, I'm on the faculty at the medical college of Wisconsin and central Wisconsin. But other than that, I'm not part of the system. So for us to chase things down can be very, very time consuming. And, if I see a person and I have no outside records, which is not uncommon at the first visit, I like to hear from the patient first what their story is. But then, if I can see their outside records, then I can see what tests have been done, what findings there are, what you know, um, you know, who all has has seen them, and what it it gives a lot more specific detail than than I had just obtained from the patient telling their story. So. Um, I guess that's what I'm getting at. And I don't, th- I don't know if I explained that very well. I'm sorry. Maybe you could sum it up better because that I don't think I explained that too well.
0: <laughs> let me let me try the summary. So <clears throat> if someone has this pentad of joint problems, blood pressure issues, temperature regulation problems, a general hyper allergic response to everything, these nonspecific GI complaints, sometimes their guts don't a- empty very well. On top of that, they have these autoimmune problems. Um, they may have thyroid issues as well this is a lot these are a lot of symptoms for someone to sit down and listen to which will probably take over an hour to get all of these complaints and that's with and that's assuming you have a healthcare professional conveying them in very clear language if someone's a not if someone is not a healthcare professional to convey all that in a very concise way, that's going to be very difficult. So the healthcare system just is not designed for three hour visits. So if a, if someone has all of these symptoms and they're going in to see their doctor, their doctor doesn't have three hours to listen to every single detail, which may or may not be important. So what you're asking is, if people can put this on a piece of paper so you can quickly review what's going on it will make the visit more efficient you summed that up
1: beautifully yes that is exactly correct and there's a saying that um, it, it's been attributed to several different people i'm not sure who said it first but the saying is if you can't connect the issues think connective tissues
0: <laughs>
1: so these are these are you know kind of myst- not not mysterious but i mean they're 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 very complex and so by basically, by a patient doing this, they're making it easier for us to connect the issues.
0: Yes, that makes a yeah. lot, of sense. A lot yeah. of sense. And just to clarify, so you are not in a typical practice. You're in something called direct care. So people will, can see you. They have to pay you out of their own pocket, or they can use, I, w- I would guess, their healthcare savings account, etc., but you can really take that lengthy amount of time that really these conditions demand. And I would, I would even suggest if anyone listening to this, if you have a young child who is hyperflexible, it may be worth establishing with someone early on now to prevent all of these problems downstream. So do you want to talk right. a, little, a little about your practice and how it works?
1: Sure. Sure. So, so you're exactly right. What people, um, do is I, I, get, I do give them a super bill so that they can submit that to their insurance for consideration. And some people do very well with that. Other people do not. And that's, it, that's dependent not just on the insurance company, but on their insurance plan, which isn't even necessarily employer-specific because they may have chosen a different plan than somebody else. So two people can work for the same employer, but if they've chosen different plans and they both come to see me, one may get reimbursed differently than the other. Um, may get reimbursed for, for what they have paid for for my services. So you're exactly right. I do not I do not process insurance payments in my office. People pay um, you know pay me or pay Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialists directly, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're paying for time. They're paying for time with me. And I've had people travel from all over the country to to come see me. And usually, if they're coming from a considerable distance, we will do. As much follow up as possible over the phone afterwards. And the other thing that I would say, if you, especially if you have a, um, a youngish um, child, and your child is at a dance studio, um, these workshops that I'm doing—it's relatively new that I started doing this. I have information on my on my website, which right now the Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialist website is is up and running. Also, if you put in London. Bluestein. Actually, I should take that back. Maybe I shouldn't give that one because I'm not sure if that's up and running. But um, also, hypermobilitymd.com and is is another way to access information about me. And also, I am on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I want to do more and more of these workshops because that's more cost effective. Um, If if a if a dance school brings me in to talk to a whole room full of people. That's cheaper than waiting and coming to me later when you have to pay for this you know, one-on-one care and if we can avoid some of these downstream problems. So that's why I'm trying to do more and more of these workshops to try to help keep people more functional rather than waiting until they're in really bad shape and they're willing to pay for you know, several hours of one-on-one time. Um, it's more efficient to do it with a bunch of people. Um, and and provide the information, and it's different. It's it's providing information, not direct medical care. But at the same time, I feel like that's um, something that really can be helpful for a lot of people.
0: Any other closing thoughts, Dr. Blustein?
1: Um I don't think so. I just really pre- – oh, yes, I'm sorry. I do have a closing thought. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about this because these conditions are – um, something that I'm I'm super passionate about, and so many people are are suffering, and they're having difficulty getting appropriate care, and it's so challenging. I, I do want to tell a brief success story that I had in my in my practice, and just because it's it's a very good illustration of like a mass activation syndrome situation problem and, and how to solve this. And I don't know that we really touched on this yet. So um, I had a patient come in, and she was having these these reactions, as we've already kind of described, and she was able to figure out that what she was reacting to was something called povidone, and it's spelled P-O-V-I-D-I-N-E, and she was able to figure out, because of the fact that she compared, and I told her to do this, I put her on um, an antihistamine, and one of the antihistamines contained this quote-unquote inactive ingredient and the other one did not. And they were otherwise the same drug. So she was taking um, claritin or um, loratadine and, and one was generic and one was trade name and one contained the povidone and the other did not. So I had told her previously, if you react differently to the generic loratadine as compared to the trade name loratadine, look at Look at the inactive ingredients, otherwise known as excipients, because that should be a good clue. So she looked and she saw that one contained the povidone and the other did not. So now that she knows to avoid that, she came back and saw me and she said she's doing so much better. So in a lot of cases with mast cell activation syndrome, the key is to identify what is triggering the reactions. And part of the challenge is stress is a big trigger. So once people get, you know, this not figured out right away, they get stressed and it makes it harder. But something like povidone, which is an, which is called an excipient, these quote unquote inactive ingredients in the drugs, are not an uncommon thing that people will react to. So I would urge people to start paying attention to what the inactive ingredients are in the drugs that they're taking, the supplements that they're taking, and things like that because, you know, you have to play a little bit of detective. And the key is to avoid these triggers. And um, heat is also another trigger So for a lot of people. So I just wanted to share that that story because in in her case, now we can identify that. She can read every, every label of every drug that she takes. I've given her a list of the top medications that contain that. And um, and that's helpful information for her.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Boosting, for taking the time to share what um, is not a very well known condition. Again, so patients who have joint problems, blood pressure, symptoms, uh, a whole host of non specific things, it may be a connective tissue disorder, and that might be the medical piece that your healthcare providers have been missing up until this time. So I would encourage anyone listening to reach out to s- someone like Dr. Bluestein with expertise in this condition. And again, prevention is a lot better than treating downstream. So if you have kids in ballet, gymnastics, etc., um, this might be worth something having someone like Dr. Bluestein come in and give a talk. So Dr. Bluestein, thank you again for taking the time for this podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting
0: me. And again, all of our contact information will be in the show notes on the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks!